0: In heresy, it seems like no one can quit talking. Maybe that's the root of heresy. So many people talking. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk, slow, seriously slow walk, through Dante's Masterwork Comedy. We are in Inferno the first canticle, we are at Canto 10. We are at lines 73 through 93, just to be geographically certain. We are in the sixth circle of hell. We have passed through the walls of Dis and we are amongst the heretics. If you remember, we had a historical figure, a grand historical figure, de Deuberti, stand up out of a burning tomb amongst the heretics, apparently amongst the Epicureans and confront Dante because he heard a Florentine dialect being spoken by our pilgrim. Veronata. and Dante exchanged a few little uh, back-and-forth jabs, and then all of a sudden someone else, Cavalcante, stood up in that same tomb and wanted to know where his son was, Guido, the great poet, Guido Cavalcanti. When things did not go exactly the way Cavalcante wanted, he sunk back down and we're left with Veronata staring at our pilgrim, with Virgil a little off in the distance. But that other austere one, whose request had stopped me in the first place, didn't change his facial expression, and didn't move his neck, nor even hitch his chest. He just continued on from where he'd been in the first place, saying, And if they have learned that art poorly, that torments me more than this bad art. But the face of that lady who reigns here will not fire up fifty times before you will know the moment when this art gets really heavy. But may be that you return to the sweet world. So tell me, why do those people and their edicts offer no leniency when it comes to my kin? And I to him, both the destruction and the great carnage that made the Arvia turn red, motivate these sorts of prayers in our temple. When he'd sighed, he shook his head and said to me, I wasn't the only one, nor certainly without a reason would I have moved along with the others. But it was I alone, when all the others agreed to make an end of Florence, who stood up openly to make her defense. We're going to stop at actually midway through Farinata's second exchange with the Pilgrim. I had thought we would go all the way to the end of Farinata's exchange, but it's just too big. So listen, if we're going to do this slowly, we might as well do it slowly. We might as well do it under the steam that we've been going, which is I don't even think it's coal steam. I think it's I don't know. I think it's a hand truck on a rail car that you pump up and down. But anyway, we better go at that speed. So here we are. Farinata has come back austere, as I translated it. I want to talk to you more about that. This passage is an interesting passage in that it's got a couple knots in it, and then I want to talk about some greater issues that surround the passage itself. So we're going to go down into the weeds a little bit in the Florentine along the way, then we'll come back up. So let's start out where the passage begins. But that austere one, whose request had stopped me in the first place, didn't change his facial expression and didn't move his neck nor even hitch his chest. So Cavalcante has been going on and on about his son, Guido. He's been having an an interpolated conversation, an interruption of a conversation with our pilgrim, Dante. And all the time, this one, the Osterwin has just been standing there stoically. The word that I translated austere is magnanimous. Magnanimo, you can hear the word magnificent in English probably back behind it. We might say the powerful one, the magnificent one. This word, magnanimo, is actually connected with Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. In Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics, this is kind of uh, seen as the highest state possible for human achievement. This is a state in which humans, according to Aristotle, have gotten to an elevated state in which they can kind of see far the landscape and the ethical problems and the moral problems that surround them, and they reach this state of, well, we might say in English, magnificence. This is the forerunner of Stoicism. Stoicism is going to come along just a few years after Aristotle. So this is kind of the forerunner of the idea of Stoicism. This magnificent bearing, this high place, and we should think here about the way that Farnata is described. Magnificent, magnanimo, is definitely in contrast to Cavalcante. Cavalcante, with his chin just hanging up over that tomb, sitting there trying to, uh, d- trying to give voice to his own sadness about the loss of his son and where he is and. much more and maybe the loss of his son's poetic talent and much more as we discussed in the last episode. But there's more to it just than the contrast between Cavalcante and Farinata. This passage is odd because of course we're back to history and because of the sadness of cavalcante and because of the humanness of cavalcante wondering where is my son and why is he not with you as he burns up inside this tomb amongst the heretics because of that very central crucial and telling expression of human pain when we hit this word in this can- in this passage of the canto magnanimo It almost carries, for my ears, a bit of an ironic overtone. Ferranata's austerity, his stoicism, doesn't seem so, how shall I say, off-putting at this point. If Ferranata had only been the one talking, if Cavalcante had never risen up in the tomb, and Ferranata was the only one we were ever paying any attention to, then his austerity would seem his austerity... But here, even that word austere, I gave it that word in the translation because I thought it just carried a shade of irony under it, given the sadness that imbues Cavalcante. And there may be more than that. John Scott, in his 1977 book Dante Magnanimo, he shared that this word magnanimo is in fact used in other medieval Florentine contexts to mean not just magnificent or austere or Greco-Roman in your stance, but also overweening or preening or try (laughs) with this, to use a modern idiom, trying too hard. According to Scott, it's, it's a word that means also pride. It's got just a little bit, and when you say pride, you have to think of Christians and sin. It's got, it's got just a little bit of pride behind it. So we might say, if we wanted to capture the full ambivalence of this term, we might say, but that austere preening one or that magnificent preening one, thereby giving it a kind of push me, pull me back and forth. Nice idea, but I think there may be more to it than that. We just came out of a debate with Cavalcante based on ebbe, held, right? And whether his son is alive or not based on the tense of a verb in the Florentine. So based on this tense, Cavalcante now believes that his son is dead and so falls back in the tomb. And, you know, it's, it's been a whole discussion based on this slipped word held. And I made a lot about this last time, but you'll notice here that After we come right out of that discussion, we hit a word, magnanimo, that displays that sort of ambiguity. It's yet another word, like the ebbe, like the tense on that verb. It's another word here, and I think intentionally chosen to show ambiguity, to, to show the kind of difficulty the text itself is running into to have language explain that which it is trying to explain here, which is factionalism and the way that humans essentially slit each other's throat. Is there something about heresy and language and the connection between the two? There could actually be. That is, that heresy is a how do we say, linguistic sin. It's a sin in which you write or you think or you speak certain thoughts that are non-orthodox. And is that, in fact, here happening in the text in that the text is showing the way language itself can slip? If so, this is a very self-conscious text. But maybe there's a deeper irony going on here about a poet doubting the efficacy of language. What if the poet is showing us that behind all of this, despite his bravado early on, that language will be able to hold in place this journey and memory will be able to hold it completely in place, maybe in fact we're reaching a point where it's not true and words like "ebe" and magnanimo are slipping right and left underneath even the poet's firm art. I find that this use of the word here is troubling, difficult, ambivalent, ambiguous, and may show more cards up the sleeve of the poet than we had originally thought. Sure, it's easy just to see Ferrinata standing there and it's a magnificent figure. Once you realize kind of the Christian, Florentine, medieval context of this word to mean overweening, preening, prideful, as well as a kind of stoic magnificence. Well, then suddenly everything gets much tougher. Let's move on in the passage, because it's going to get tougher. He, Farinata, just continued on from where he'd been in the first place. And I love this bit, because... In a larger context of what's going on in this canto, we have had a discussion about politics and Florence, go back two episodes of this podcast, with Ferranata. Then we had, as I argued in the last episode of this podcast, a discussion essentially about art and Guido Guido Cavalcanti and Dante and Dante going a different way from Guido and all that expressed through the grief of the father. And now we're back to politics. We're back to Ferranata and he's just been standing there, and he can picks up just where he left off. Remember, he got in a little spat with Dante, and Dante said, yeah, well, my relatives, although they were banished, came back twice, and that's something your kith and kin never learned how to do. And so he picks right up from that. And if they have learned that art, he uses that word, arte, if they have learned that art poorly, that torments me more than in this this bed I'm in. So he's just been standing there waiting to make his retort back to Dante while Cavalcante has been expressing human sadness. Maybe, and I tend to think this is what's going on here, politics just will never understand art or art interrupts politics, or politics has nothing to say in a discussion of art, or political factionalism and artistic factionalism, while nodes of human factionalism don't actually have anything to say to each other. Don't forget, Cavalcante is Ferranata's in-law, but Cavalcante was a Guelph. They married their children to each other. Cavalcante married his son to Ferranata's daughter. Here they are in the same tomb together, and yet they have zero interaction. In fact, it seems as if Ferranata is just waiting for Cavalcante to finish his mewling sadness before he gets back to what he wants to say. If they, my kid, can have learned that art poorly, and now he's using art to mean political skill, the political skill of coming back from exile. And so he's shifted the definition of art away from where we just were, with the two great lyric poets of Florence, Guido Cavalcanti and Dante, together in one bit in the last passage. He says, and they've learned that art probably that that fact torments me more than this bed I'm in. That's is very intriguing because that says that Farinata thinks there's something worse than damnation. There is something that hurts him more than having to lie about in a burning sarcophagus. Wait, isn't damnation supposed to be the worst? How can something torment you more than God's justice? Is this heresy? or heroics. It's difficult to tell because our poet's attitude toward Farinata is slipping. Here's what I think. If we had only had a discussion of politics, we wouldn't have gotten to this moment in which our poet seems to be imbuing this character with a heroics above the very torments of hell. Now, some people are going to say, and many critics do, that Farinata is just Uh, well uh, blowing off steam he's just talking you know out as my mother would say talking out of the side of his head meaning he's just he's 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 bragging about what is in fact not the truth that surely the sepulchre burns him worse Yet doesn't seem like it with his austere stoicism standing there it seems like he's being honest and up until now although he is a jerk he has been honest And if they have learned that, probably that torments me more. You should just stop than this bed I'm in. How can that be? How can the poet let that be? How can the poet create something that is worse than God's damnation? That is the torment of the Ghibellines and of Farinata's family. How? I may have an answer for that. So let's go on. But the face of that lady who reigns here, that lady, Proserpina or Persephone. In other words, we're talking about the queen of the underworld who is often represented as the moon. The face of that lady who reigns here will not fire up 50 times. In other words, there won't be 50 lunar cycles before you, he's talking to the pilgrim, will know the moment when this art gets really heavy. Quanto pesa, You'll know how heavy this art of exile and coming back and going out and coming back is within 50 lunar cycles. If the date of the poem is in 1300, around an Easter weekend alleged to be in late March of 1300, There's all kinds of talk about that early in the podcast. If that's where we are, then we're talking about the summer of 1304. And the summer of 1304 is when the White Guelphs, that is Dante's party, are finally and fully defeated by the blacks. And Dante comes to understand that his exile is final, that there will be no going back. As the White Guelphs try to re-enter Florence, they're put down, and Dante, in exile, now knows there is no going back. But catch this, which I find so interesting in this passage. Farinata speaks, and, and, you know, throughout this passage, Farinata speaks in a very formal and very flowery way. The face of that lady who reigns there will not fire up 50 times. Talking about uh, Proserpina or Persephone, but also talking about the moon, which is a representation. And it, it seems all very cloudy the way he speaks in this very courtly way. Okay, fair enough. But underneath this, Do you hear it? There's a camaraderie. Federnata has expressed a kind of like-minded fate with our pilgrim. And they're in the same place. We've been told that Federnata's family can't come back. They don't learn the art of how to come back. And guess what? Now Federnata says, you're going to learn how heavy this art is too. Yes, he's being a little bit of a jerk. And yet we can't help but hear that slight bit of camaraderie, of fellowship underneath it. We're both exiles. In fact, everybody in this canto is in exile. Virgil is in exile from Limbo, where he is supposed to be. Cavalcante, not so much, but Guido, his son, was certainly exiled, and Cavalcante himself suffered exile during his life, but more importantly, his son was exiled by dante's own hand and died in that exile and Ferranata and his family were exiled and Ferranata's body was exhumed as i told you and burned as a heretic and thrown into an unmarked grave and here we're being told that the pilgrim will ultimately be in exile everybody is in exile is that heresy is it for dante the definition of what a heretic is. That is, the truth is self-evident. This is clearly Dante. The truth is self-evident. And if you're going to turn away from the truth, then you're going to be in exile, no doubt about it. And Ferinata goes on in his flowery speech, and may it be that you return to that sweet world. So tell me, who? why do those people and their edicts offer no leniency when it comes to my kin? What I'm intrigued by here is that Farinata focuses in on edicts on laws why do those people and their edicts or their laws offer no leniency when it comes to my kin why is that that my kin the Ghibellines are now the subject of so much terrifying legislation and exile okay Fine. And Dante responds, both the destruction and the great carnage that made the Arbia turn red. This is a reference again to the Battle of Monteperti in 1260. Arbia is a river that is near to the battle site. Uh, the claim is that there was so much blood that the Arbia ran red. So this is a battle that Farinata had a place in. This is a battle in which Farinata's side won and and banish the Gelfs. And so Dante says, the destruction of the great carnage that made the Audria turn red motivate those sorts of prayers. Ah, this is what I'm so interested in. In our temple, you'll notice that Dante and Ferranata do not speak the same language. Ferranata talks about edicts or laws. Dante talks about prayers. And they're talking past each other they're not connecting and as dante doesn't answer anything about laws instead he asks he answers something about religion about prayers and in fact about prayers for well bloodshed and revenge those aren't the kind of prayers you're supposed to offer in a church. There's all kinds of critical statements and commentary about what church or temple is Dante talking about. He's talking about Santa Croce. What's he talking about in Florence? Is there a specific one? Believe me, there's a ton of ink spilled on this. I just want to back up and say that you're not supposed to pray for the death of your enemies in a Christian church. And so Dante the Pilgrim is just a little bit of a heretic right here. After all, these are not prayers then said in praise of God. These are prayers to say, slit the Ghibelline's throats. Make sure my side wins. And in this exchange, we can see A, Dante and Fernanda talking past each other, and B, our pilgrim twisting a bit of a Christian message inside the passage itself. It's all super intriguing. And I believe that we wouldn't see all of this ambivalence if we hadn't seen Cavalcante's sadness. If this had just been like with Chaco back in Canto Six, if this had just been a scene in which we discuss Florentine politics with a great leader of the Ghibellines, we wouldn't hear as much of the, oh, what what do I want to say? Overwhelming ambivalence inside this passage as we now hear it. But having passed, the poet's genius is obvious here, having passed through that scene of human sadness, we come out to this scene and Ferranata doesn't seem quite so austere nor quite so much of a jerk. And in fact, our pilgrim seems to be talking past him, continuing the factionalism, and one could almost feel, almost, almost feel sympathy for Farinata. You realize what that means? That's saying that the passage, because we pass through the human sadness of the father looking for his son, pulls us out to a place in which now we see the humanity of the pilgrim's enemy. Maybe he is magnanimo, but that magnanimo is tinctured and changed such that this person is in torments over his own family, more so than the judgment of God. This figure is offering the pilgrim a glimpse into his future, which is terrible, exile, and yet at the same time, better to know the devil than not see him coming, so this this, this figure is offering the pilgrim something that helps him understand his life. And then he gets really human. At the back of the passage, we need side. Sospirando. This may be the key to our seeing Ferranata as more than a stoic figure. More than, as I said, a Greco-Roman statue. When he'd sighed, he shook his head and said to me, I wasn't the only one, nor certainly without a reason would I have moved along with the others. In other words, I wasn't the only one who brought bloodshed at the Battle of Monteperti. I'm not the only guilty party here. And of course, he's impugning other Ghibellines with him, but you can't hear it, I wasn't the only one, without hearing the indictment of Gelfs all along with him. Dante in exile, and this may be the key to Ferranata, Dante in exile is mostly at the whim of Ghibelline leaders like Can Grande I de la Scala. And here, having Ferranata, a great Ghibelline, stand up out of the tomb and confront our pilgrim, here the poet is being very brave. It would be very easy to, well, bite the hand that feeds him. And instead, we feel a pull in this passage back and forth, maybe because of Dante's own exile, because he himself is at the mercy of Ghibellines. And furthermore, he has come to a place in which he is aligned a bit with the Ghibelline concerns. After all, Dante is waiting for the Holy Roman Emperor to descend and set Italy right. The Holy Roman Empire backs the Ghibellines. And so Dante, a Guelph, a white Guelph, admittedly, but a Guelph is nonetheless now just a little bit more closely aligned with the Ghibellines, both for food in exile and politically in his hopes that the Holy Roman Empire will set this thing right and bring the church back into position where it's supposed to be in Rome, get it out of Avignon, get it back to Rome where it's supposed to be, get the papacy back to what it's supposed to be doing, which is not messing around in political events, but messing around in the spirituality of people and not in their social organization. So here, the softening of Ferranata's character does have a historical resonance inside the poet, but I'm still going to argue that, in fact, his sighing and shaking his head and suddenly seeming more human, I'm going to argue that structurally it arises out of the Cavalcante episode. And the Cavalcante episode, set in the middle of Ferranata's conversation, allows us to come Back to Farinata with a renewed focus on his humanness. He says, after all, but it was I alone, when all the others agreed to make an end of Florence, who stood up openly to make her defense. We talked about this in two episodes ago. We talked about that Farinata stood up and said, no, don't burn Florence to the ground. Leave it. Leave it because... I love Florence. It's a wild passage. It's, there's more to it. We've got one more episode on Ferenata and his conversation, and there's more to it. And it even gets a little wilder after this, but now it's going to get theologically wilder in the next episode. But there's a larger point that I want to make before we exit this truncated passage in the dialogue with Ferenata. If Dante's journey into Inferno is about the loss of humanity which i think it is it's about losing humanity until you're almost not recognizable and the ways that humans destroy their own humanity through an overindulgence of the appetites and now we're turning towards sins of the will and here in heresy interestingly we're settling in on political factionalization and tribalism. All right, fine, the ways to lose humanity. Who's losing their humanity in this passage? Not Ferranata. In fact, he seems to be gaining humanity. Not Cavocante. No, he seemed the most human character in this passage. Not our poet because our poet is showing a world that is less black and white than we might imagine amongst the heretics. Maybe it's our pilgrim. Our pilgrim who is still holding out for the prayers in our temple, the prayers to bloodshed, the prayers to revenge, the prayers to tribalism. It may be that over the course of Canto X, one of the things that happens is is our pilgrim loses a bit of his humanity and then, this has to wait for the next episode, gets it back, finds his way back to his own humanity. Because here, Fernanda is softening, shaking his head, sighing. Our pilgrim is not. He is still talking about destruction and carnage and Arbia turned red and prayers in temples. Guess who's really holding on to factionalism here. It would be our pilgrim. In fact, it's the most interesting part of Canto Ten, The way our pilgrim seems to lose himself in factionalism and then we got to wait for the next episode. Find his way back. Find his way back to his humanness. Find his way back to being a person who understands, well, that being human is one of the most difficult things one could ever do. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. I hope you'll drop a comment, go to the bottom of the Apple page and drop a comment right there. I would so appreciate it. This labor of love would so appreciate it. Or go to my website, markscarbo.com and there you can actually drop comments onto each episode and we can have a conversation about these episodes, about anything that comes up, about something that bugs you, and even if you've dropped in here and you haven't walked this far with us, you can still go back on my website and start this whole journey from the beginning and we can talk the whole time because as I've said a hundred times, podcasts are a quantum reality. Subscribe, come back. We're not done with Farinata. We're not done with our pilgrim. Our poet's not done with any of them. We shouldn't be either. So come back to the next episode of Walking with Dante.